So welcome to the month of October. It's been one month. We're going through this series, By This We Know. It's an expository series through 1 John. The title of today's sermon is The Advocate. That is the center of the message of today. So, I have a big challenge ahead of me to go through these two verses to show you the truth of Scripture because these two verses is indeed the heart of the gospel. And your understanding of these two verses will illumine and will deepen and will make you want to worship God all the more. And so you can understand then the challenge ahead of me is almost impossible. But by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, I trust that you will be edified and be built up as we bring forth the Word of God. So I'll invite you all again to stand as we read God's Word together. The passage is in 1 John, of course, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you because your word is true. I ask you, God, that you would help us navigate through these deep waters that is your word. I pray, Lord, that your people, your saints here will be edified, will be built up, that those who do not know you, God, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would turn from their sins and they would trust in the one and only Savior of the world. Lord, we ask you to come in our midst to move among us for your glory and for your praise. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. What is surety? Surety is a person who voluntarily becomes the legal grantor of another's debt or responsibility. Now imagine with me a courtroom where there's a judge, there's a prosecutor who is intent on bringing the full extent of the law on the guilty. And there's a guilty man standing there. He's a defendant. And with the defendant is a lawyer. Let's call the prosecutor the moral law. And let's call the lawyer the advocate. The prosecutor is pleading with the judge, saying, Your Honor, the evidence is all before us, and that man is guilty. I am asking for a guilty verdict, Your Honor, to come down on this man. As the judge sits there, contemplates all the evidence, and he's definitely going to hand down a guilty verdict. The defendant there with his head down, knowing he's going to go away for a long time. 
You see, the defendant have stolen, or he owed rather, a huge amount of debt that he can never, ever repay. And the lawyer, the advocate, in the last moment, speaks up and he says, Your Honor, I will be the surety for my client. I will take on his debt. I will bear everything he ever owed, and I will take care of it. If you were that criminal, that defendant, how awesome would it be knowing that you have transgressed the law, that someone would come and step in and take the punishment that you deserve? You would like that, wouldn't you? Of course you would. And if you sit there pontificating, saying, no, I will take the responsibility for my own sin, then please, every time you overspeed or you do not make a full stop at a stop sign, call the police on yourself. See, the reality is we want to be forgiven. We want to feel that forgiveness. We want a cleansing of our conscience. Every single one of us is guilty before a holy God and deserving of wrath. The question is, is there an advocate who will take on himself the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve? Well, the answer is yes, there is. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the advocate. He is the one who on the cross took on the punishment that you and I deserve. And justice has been served. The same way in that imaginary courtroom, justice has been served. And that criminal in that courtroom can be let go, set free, because someone else will pay the penalty. Now you may be sitting there and wondering, well, this is surely too good to be true. And thankfully, you would be wrong, because it is true. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He did come in this world, and He lived a perfect life, and He did die on the cross, and He did rise from the dead, telling us that we are justified before a holy God, and we are set free. This is the good news. Now, there are many questions that can come out of this, thinking like, if I am justified before a holy God, what if I sin? If I sin, do I lose my salvation? Do I lose my standing before a holy and a just God? You see, if Christ just took care of the sin that I have done before I came to know Christ, and now that I have confessed, repented, and trusted in Christ, and lived a life that is full of sin, because that's the problem with people. We sin, but we do not make a habit of sin. And as we will see now in the text, 
do we lose our salvation? Do we stumble that we will regress? That we would not grow in sanctification, that is holiness. Is it possible for a Christian to remain Christian? Well, these are some of the questions that the Christians here in Asia Minor were contemplating. Just to remind you of the historical context of the letter, 1 John, he was writing to people in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they were embattled Christians. There were Christians with people in their midst believing in doctrines that are not in accord with Scripture. Not what the apostles have proclaimed. They have teachers rising up, refuting the apostles of Christ. And this was the heresy that at that time they did not know what it's called, but we now call it Gnosticism. So the proto-Gnostic movement, it began there. And the Gnostics had this twisted view of the world. The whole world is inferior in their own mind. That means that this flesh that we have is something that God doesn't care about. That's what they taught. And they continued to go around telling believers that now if you have this knowledge through Christ, you are saved. This what they called gnosis, that secret knowledge. Then you are saved. Your soul is secure. But your body, God doesn't care about your body. You can live in whichever way you want to live. And so the heresy brought forth this fruit of licentiousness. Living in whichever way you want to live. And this is the context in which we find ourselves in chapter 2. So look down in your Bibles and we begin to read the first phrase. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I want to divide this verse into two. The first section, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's section one. And the section two is, but if anyone does sin, etc. And then section three will be verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we're going to go through these three sections, one section at a time. Let's go to the first section we have. My little children, and you see his posture changed, the apostle. He's now trying to encourage God's people. And these, this phrase and these two verses function as a hinge between what came before and what is coming after. And basically what we already discussed in the previous sermon, that God is holy, God is light, and in Him, no darkness at all. And so the apostle is saying, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You see, previously, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John Calvin, a reformer, points out something that is curious in these two verses. In connection with this passage, verse 1 and 2, in the first verse, in verse 7, it says that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And there's another cleansing. There's a cleansing of all unrighteousness in verse 9. What is the difference? Well, the first cleanses from all sin has to do with our justification. Okay? It's our justification. And the second has to do with our sanctification. And this is important to understand because the objective of the sermon today, and you will see it on the screen, is for us to understand that Jesus is our advocate and our propitiation. That means within the redemptive work of Christ, he provides the advocacy and he provides the propitiation for our justification, sanctification, and perseverance. Look on your screen. If you go back to the screen, you have two points in the objective. The propitiation of Christ leads to the justification of the elect in Christ. The second is the advocacy of Christ leads to the sanctification and perseverance of the elect in Christ. Now, it's very important. I, I completely realize that I've just said a bunch of Christian jargon that some of you will think, oh my goodness, I have no idea what he just said. And that is okay. Going back to this verse, you will see the concept of justification in cleansing us from all sin. And justification means this, the forensic declaration that you, although guilty, free of sin. It has this judicial connotation that you are free from that sin. Now, the second verse in verse 9, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, which means he guarantees our sanctification by his redemption on the cross. And we can see this a lot more clearly in, verse, in chapter 3. Now, when people are wondering if I have to live a perfect life, a holy life, like God, who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, then we're in trouble. We are in trouble. That means I will never be saved. I will never actually have justification because I'm a sinner. Well, here's the solution. Verse, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What does that mean? It means that the work of sanctification, it comes after the forensic declaration that you are free of sin. Sanctification meaning that you are growing in holiness, that you are becoming holier and holier, being conformed to the image of Christ. You're becoming more like Christ. And so he's saying here that he, you will never be perfectly holy until when you see him again. 
you will be like him. So, I hope I did not lose you. Let me bring it back real quick. He discusses two points by everything I just said. He discusses two points. He's saying you cannot be antinomian, meaning without law. You cannot live a life whichever way you want to live. You have to be holy. On the flip side, he's saying you cannot advocate sinless perfectionism. That means you can live a life that is completely pure, that you have absolutely no sin because you would be a liar. He actually says that in verse in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's assuming that we have sins. Look at verse 10. If we say in chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And so we understand that he's making these two points. You cannot say, I can live in whichever way I want to live. You have to be holy. And on the flip side, you cannot say, I can, I can be without sin. These two things you cannot say. Now, what happens if we do sin? Going back to the main question, do we lose our salvation? Short answer, no. Why? Because, let's go back, of the advocacy and the propitiation of Christ. Verse 1 in chapter 2, we're going to go to the second section here. But if anyone does sin, he's assuming that you will sin. You see, very clear. We have an advocate. That's his answer. Will you sin? Of course you will. But what's the solution? Well, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, it's very important to pay attention now. If you were not paying attention, please lean in right now. The word advocate is in the Greek, parakletos, which is mentioned only in 1 John and in the Gospel of John. About one time in 1 John and four times in the Gospel of John. What is interesting about that word that is in the gloss word in English is the advocate is that every time the Apostle John uses that word in the Gospel of John, it denotes the work of the Holy Spirit. But in 1 John, he associates that word with the work of Christ as the one who is standing at the right hand of God the Father, as a mediator, as an intercessor. You see, the word parakletos, which is in the Greek, which is the gloss word advocate, means that he is a mediator that he's someone who's interceding on behalf of someone else. And this when we also have the connection between justification and sanctification. That means those whom Christ died for, they will be sanctified. Okay? Those whom Christ died for, that means they are justified, that means they are without sin, declared righteous before God, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, that is justification. I see some puzzled eyes. Let me repeat this. Justification is, that means that Jesus took on the punishment for us, and so he took away our sins. 
at the same time, he imputed, that is, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is justification. And from everyone who is justified are also sanctified. Those who are justified, they are sanctified. That means sanctification proceeds from justification. Or put it differently, justification precedes sanctification. Let's look at definition, at a definition from the book. Here's a definition you have on your screen by Ab Rackle, an 18th century, uh, 18th century, that's right, 18th century Dutch Reformed theologian. He writes, justification is a gracious work of God, whereby he, as righteous judge, acquits the elect from guilt and punishment and declares them to be heirs of eternal life. Because of the righteousness of Christ, the surety. Remember the definition of surety? He's taking your place in punishment. And then what? Imputed to them by God and received by them through faith. So the righteousness of Christ is imputed. That means they are clothed in the righteousness that is not theirs. That is through Christ. And they receive this justification by faith in Christ. Now, sanctification is the efficacious operation. And I, I know this, this is a lot, but this is for those who are a bit theological nerds. Sanctification is the efficacious operation of God in elect, called, regenerated, and justified sinners, purifying them by means of the word from the pollution of sin, transforming them according to the image of God and by virtue of this internal principle of spiritual life, causing them to live according to his will as expressed in the law of the Ten Commandments. Simply put, sanctification is God working in our hearts for us to be holier and holier. That's it, okay? Very simple. Now, let's go back to our verse. So we need to understand this. But if anyone does not does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the one who imparts or imputes, rather, righteousness on us. And by his advocacy, that means he's interceding with God the Father for our sanctification. He's pleading with God, I saved my people, Lord. Have them sanctified by your word. Okay? So, sanctification includes obedience and also it includes perseverance. So, when you fall and you sin, Christian, you know that there is an advocate with the Father who is interceding and praying for you on your behalf so that your faith will not fail you sin, you stumble, sure, of course, but you get up and you continue to walk progressively and you grow in holiness. Why? Because there is a righteous man at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. Who is better to pray for you than Jesus Christ himself? Now, the Apostle John actually gives us a portrait of this mediation. Let's go to John chapter 17. 
And you see here, actually, Jesus says he's doing this for the benefit of those who hear. In John chapter 17, the gospel of John chapter 17, let's pick up from verse 6 to verse 20. Let's stop at 20. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Notice now, he's interceding on behalf of God's people. He's saying, I'm praying for them. So what is he praying? Notice, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I want you to highlight that because we're going to come back to this in the following verse. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. You see, he's already died, raised from the dead, and he's exalted at the right hand of God the Father. So he's not, he's not talking about him, his work before crucifixion. He's talking about his work post-resurrection. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them. Keep them. He's going to repeat this numerous times. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And what did he do? I have guarded them. So he kept them, and he have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's saying, I am doing this so they would know that I am their advocate, I am their mediator. I am praying for them that their faith may not fail. Verse 13. No, I already, we already just read that. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And look at this word now. Sanctify. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So not, see, the work of the advocate is not only to make sure they are saved, but also to sanctify them. So in the work of sanctification, if we can say it differently, that obedience and perseverance are provided for in sanctification. 
He continues in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does that mean? As a high priest, he saying, I consecrate myself for what work? For this work, for the work of intercession and mediation. He is the righteous one. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through their word. Let's stop. That's, that's enough. I want you to notice in verse 20. I want you to keep this in mind because we're going to come back to this. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but look at the construction, but also for those who will believe through their word. Now, we also have the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. He's the one who's saying, believe what we're saying. We're telling you Jesus Christ came to rescue sinners and do not believe the lies of the Gnostics. Now, let's go to our final section of this sermon and actually the most difficult one. Verse 2. You're probably thinking, oh my goodness, it's going to get more difficult. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you want to listen to the sermon again, you should. I uh, have a manuscript written out. You can ask your home group facilitator or teacher to send you the manuscript. You can go through the sermon, go through the verses, make sure you understand all of these things. And if you have any questions, ask the home groups or you're welcome to ask me. So let's go back. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, let's divide this verse into two. The first phrase is, He is the propitiation for our sins. Let's deal with that. Propitiation is the English gloss for another Greek word, elasmos. And this is a very significant word, actually. This means... What I've said before, this is the heart of the doctrine of justification. Propitiation means that Jesus Christ on the cross have exhausted the wrath of God for those whom he is saving. And by doing that, he has appeased, propitiated, satisfied the justice of God. The righteousness of God has been satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross. That's what this word means, propitiation. Means, he just put in a shorter, succinct uh, uh, definition, propitiation is appeasing or satisfying the justice of God. That is what propitiation is. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, of course, by the way, it's very important before I move on, Propitiation is a doctrine that has been highly criticized by many, including, of course, the progressive Christians. Progressive Christian circles do not like this term because what we see in the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity, commandment number two, commandment number three, they focus on two things. You should not focus on sin. Why? Jesus did not come to, to be a blood sacrifice for sinners. 
Jesus came to be an example of wholeness and self-sacrificial service, they say. And the work of reconciliation that Jesus has done on the cross is not to reconcile humanity to God, God's people to God, but to reconcile people to each other. Progressive Christians abhor the doctrine of propitiation. In fact, they mock it and they say it is cosmic child abuse because God the Father have sent his son into the world to die for the sins of his people. And so they call it cosmic child abuse. And in fact, Philip Gully, whom I spoke about in my previous sermon, he wrote a book by the title, If the Church Were Christian. And in that book, he actually says that pastors, like me here, <laughs> who are saying that to their people that they are wretched sinners deserving of judgment are mistreating their people. He's saying it is, um, it is spiritual abuse. And I'm quoting him, by the way. So what does he want us to teach? Well, what Philip Gully and progressive Christians want us to teach is to teach that you should reconcile with each other only. That he came for us to do self-sacrificial service. You see, the emphasis is in moralism. And there's a downplaying of sin and undermining not only the gospel, but the heart of the gospel that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? If it's not propitiation, then what is it? So how do we contradict or refute the teaching of the progressive Christians? Well, to understand what the Apostle John is saying in his epistle is exactly contrary to what they are getting us or trying to mock us with because they are mocking the Word of God. You see, the Apostle John understood, and we have already said this in previous sermons, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That means that God is holy, and you'll see on the screen, God is holy and just. Number two, he understood that people are sinners deserving of judgment. We just saw this. He said, if you say you are without sin, you are a liar. So the Apostle John clearly understood these two truths. And he also understood that God made a way to reconcile with sinners. And that way is through Jesus Christ, his son. And he understood the Old Testament types and all the um, doctrines of the Old Testament that pointed to Christ. See, the Apostle John was a Jew. And he understood what is the temple stands for, what the sacrifices stand for, and what, the, what does the high priest stand for, and all the priestly work. He understood all of these things. And that's why he actually doubles down in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 in 1 John, verse 9 and 10. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, 
so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, here's the word again that they hate, the propitiation for our sins. It is clear. And to give you an illustration of this propitiation, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, is a Reformed Presbyterian minister and a theologian. He gives us this illustration. Jesus Christ, so this is really easy. I'm going to hammer this in. You're going to leave here. You're gonna, I'm going to make sure you understand this. Jesus Christ on the cross propitiated. He appeased the justice of God. So by his death, he appeased the justice of God and simultaneously redeemed his people. How does redemption is accomplished? Is by God the Father declare them justified. He declares them justified. They are justified through God the Father. So the redemption of Jesus Christ includes the propitiation, right? He propitiated to God. Why, what, what does, why does he need to propitiate? You see, you are guilty. That's the point. He's the surety. You are guilty. There is an outstanding, infinite debt on your head and mine. And so someone got to pay. Jesus paid for it. And that is propitiation. And so you are declared, declared innocent. You are set free. That is justification. Okay? So we understand that. Now, let's move on. I want to summarize. You can summarize this in actually Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. I want to show you all of these things, all of the things that I just said, put together. Romans 3, verse 21 to 26. And hopefully now when you read this, you will say, oh, now everything makes sense. Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that is. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, the same word that people hate, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now, let's look at the final phrase of this passage. 
verse 2. He says, he's the, sorry, he's the propitiation for our sins. Final phrase, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In order for you to understand this latter phrase, you need to know two misinterpretations of this phrase. The first misinterpretation is universalism. That is the teaching that started with a, an early church father, an unorthodox church father. That means, unorthodox means not good, okay? Um, by the name of Origen in the late second century, early third century. And this thought, universalism, is that people will eventually be saved, eventually, somehow. And some prominent theologians in the 20th century by the name of Karl Barth actually taught this. There's a cousin for universalism, a flawed cousin. It's called annihilationism, meaning that those who are not saved will be snuffed out of existence. That means they are going against the eternal damnation, the doctrine of final judgment. That means that people will have conscious torment, those who reject the gospel because of their sin. And they refute that and they say, no, they will be just snuffed out, out of existence. And one of a really otherwise orthodox, otherwise a good theologian, his name is John Stott, he actually teaches this false doctrine. He's otherwise in other things he is good, but in this he is very wrong. There's a very popular church, a mega church in Canada, actually in Toronto. It's called the Meeting House. It has multiple campuses, and they actually teach this false doctrine, the doctrine of an annihilationism. And they also teach a pro-LGBTQ message. That means they believe that a Christian can be a Christian and can be gay. I've already refuted this thoroughly in my last sermon. And it is needless for me to refute this doctrine because they are wrong on their face. Universalism and annihilationism. And you can look this up by yourself in the Gospel of John chapter 5 and further clarification in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. We just do not have the time to, do, to kind of go there. So I want to focus on the second misunderstanding that is universal atonement. Now, most evangelicals believe this. Let me say this again. Most evangelicals believe this, and it is wrong, and we're going to see this from Scripture. They believe that Jesus died for the whole world. And this misunderstanding, both, by the way, universalism and universal atonement, is rooted in the misunderstanding of the word world here. That is, in the Greek, cosmos. But if you just study the word cosmos, in this letter itself, in 1 John, you will know that the word cosmos are rendered differently, denoting different things based on the context in which it occurs. Let me give you an example. Look in the same chapter, verse 15. Verse 15, we read, Do not love the world. Now, we have a problem immediately, because if the world cosmos mean all of humanity, that is every single person, 
That means the apostle is telling us, do not love all humanity, every single person. Now, that's a problem. And it also means that Jesus died for those whom he hates. Well, we need to understand that he's addressing people who are embattled with a wrong theology, that is Gnosticism, that they are downplaying the world. They see the world as inferior, going back to our historical context. And he's saying, well, no, Jesus came to die for those who are in the world. He came to redeem them. So what is the answer, you tell me? So what is the answer? If we were to look at this, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Andrew, what are you saying? What does this word mean? Well, it means this, that the world cosmos, he is denoting Jew and Gentiles who will believe in Jesus all throughout generations. Let me say it again. The word world in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, means Jew and Gentile, those who are elect by God throughout all generations. Let me persuade you, shall we? Let's go to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 11. Let me show you. Because one thing for the preacher to say something, another thing to show you from Scripture. John 11. We're going to read from verse, well, let's just read verse 15, sorry, 51 and 52 specifically. They're here plotting to kill Jesus. And Caiaphas said, don't worry about him. You don't have to kill him. And he says this in verse 51. He did not say, he basically said, don't worry about him. Uh, look at, actually, let's, let's pick up from verse 50, just to make sure you understand the context. He says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then the apostle is commenting on what Caiaphas said. The apostle John, who wrote this gospel, he says in verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now catch this in verse 52. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now I want to remind you of John 17, the same construction in verse 20. When Jesus said, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So it clearly has in view here the Jews and Gentiles. Let's really put this to bed with two more points. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. They're praising and worshiping Jesus. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
So the world that he is talking about here is those who will be saved at the end from every tribe, nation, and people. If you are still not persuaded, let's go back to 1 John. See, the whole point of these two verses is that he's encouraging Christians that even when they sin, they will not lose their salvation. That their sanctification is secured. Their justification is secured in the redemption of Christ. And he uses these two words. He is the propitiation in verse 2, and we have an advocate in verse 1. So the propitiation, that means Jesus' death on the cross propitiated for all of those whom he also advocates for. You see, both are linked. Those whom he died for are the same ones whom he's interceding for. And if we are saying the whole world is saved, then Jesus' propitiation and his advocacy have failed billions of people miserably. I'll give you a moment to think about that. The propitiation of Christ and his intercession failed because people die without believing in Christ. As a matter of fact, most people die without believing in Christ all throughout redemptive history. And it goes contrary to the point that John is making here. He's encouraging believers. He's saying, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's encouraging them. He's like, don't worry, we have an advocate. That means you will not fail because it is guaranteed, it is sealed. Now this is confirmed all throughout Scripture. Let me show you one place in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Turn with me, book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're going to go through only two passages and we're done. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21 to 28. Now pay attention, lean in. This is very important. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. Okay, you turn there. But this, but this one was made a priest, he's talking about Jesus, with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the grantor of a better covenant. The former priests, he's talking about the Old Testament priesthood, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, his, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it, it was, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, 
and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First, for his own sins and then for the sins for those of the people. Since he did, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, three things I want you to note here as you look at these, at these verses. The first, the permanency and the enduring nature of Christ's office as a mediator as an advocate, as a high priest who intercedes. Look in verse 21. He's a priest forever. Verse 22. Jesus is a grantor of a better covenant. He holds his priesthood in verse 24 permanently because he continues forever. And what does that mean? That means his intercession, look at verse 25 the last phrase, since he always lives. He lives forever, and therefore his intercession is permanent. He doesn't die. Now, the second thing you need to know is the efficacy of his mediation. Efficacy of his mediation. And that means his intercession is successful. Meaning, look at verse 25. Because of his intercession, he is able to save to the uttermost. Because of his intercession. Brother and sister, do you take the word of God seriously? Well, here it is. Pay attention. He is able to save to the uttermost. Number three, the stature of the mediator. Who is he? We're talking about the son of God. His intercession does not fail. Why? Because he's the righteous. Look at verse 26. We have a high priest. What? He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heaven. You think God the Father will say, no, sorry. No, he won't. No, he won't. Look in chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick up from verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here you have the two things, the propitiation, right? He have sacrificed himself for sin. And you have the advocacy right there. He sat down at the right hand of God. That means he's the mediator. He sat down. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that means those whom he died for. He has perfected for all time. That means they're going to persevere. They're going to obey. Why? Because they're being interceded for by the Son of God himself. And he secured two things for them. 
their obedience and their perseverance. Look in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bear witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is complete. His death took away sin and his death put his law in our hearts. That's why the apostle John is pleading with God's people and he's saying, you cannot be continuing in sin. There's, okay, look right at me, please. There is no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. It is an oxymoron. It's like saying the devil does something good. It makes no sense. A Christian is being sanctified. Why? Because he is justified. If he is justified, then he's being sanctified. And if he is from God's elect who has been justified and is being sanctified, his faith will not fail. Look in verse 19. Perseverance. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, look at verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and thus fulfilling the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest, thus fulfilling the high priesthood of the, old, of the Old Testament, over the household of God, thus fulfilling the temple of the Old Testament. The temple, priesthood, and sacrifices fulfilled in Christ right here through his flesh, verse 20. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now. As a result of that, as Jesus fulfills all of these requirements, what can we do now? As Christians, this is, Christian, this is for your soul. Listen to this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Praise God. Now let us summarize. If this was a lot, it's okay. It's good for your soul. Go back and listen to it and take three points. Here's three points. Write them down and you're good. First, Christ's suffering is perfect. You need to know, I am a sinner justified through Christ alone who received the wrath of God in my place. Amen, somebody. Number two, Christ's righteousness is complete. I am righteous by his grace alone through faith in him alone. Amen? Number three, Christ's intercession never fails. Christ's intercession never fails. By his grace, I am growing in holiness and by faith in him, and my faith in him will endure forever. Amen. 
three application points. You want to study this further, go back to our London Baptist Confession. It's on our website, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapters 8, 11, 13, and 17 discusses all the doctrines we just discussed. Reflect, meditate on these biblical truths, and worship and thank the Lord for His amazing grace. Finally, this is how you apply this. Join a home group and share with them how these truths impact your life as a Christian. Okay? Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for your word because indeed it is comfort to know that you are just and faithful to forgive us all our sins. Lord God, I pray that you would encourage us this afternoon with these truths, that we would remember that there is a high priest who is faithful, who is interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father, that we know that our faith is secure, that his love for us never fails, that even when we sin, we can confess our sins, and he is just and faithful to forgive us. I thank you, God, for your word. I pray that it's, it is sanctified unto our hearts, that your truth will endure in our minds. Thank you for giving us the perseverance to sit through this lengthy sermon. And I pray that you would bless the communion that we're about to have together as one body, praising you and remembering the sacrifice of propitiation that you have done for us, that we are set free, that we can enjoy our fellowship with each other and with our Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.